If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Genesis 14. Genesis chapter 14. Verse 17. <clears throat> then after his return from the defeat of the Cheddar Cheese Coalition, <laughs> I had to say it again. I was talking about that Wednesday night. Cheddar Lamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. Father, we come simply for our portion today, and, and it is whatever you have apportioned to us, whatever our share is supposed to be, whatever it is that you, by your Spirit, want to accomplish in each one of us. I, I marvel at this every single week from service to service, Lord, that you have a way of speaking personally, and you have a way of dealing with each one of us individually as well as a, as a corporate church family. And I just ask that you'll help us to dial in and to hear your spirit. Because I know, Lord, and have become convinced over the years, you have a word for every person here. I pray that no one goes untouched. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will speak and that every ear will hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to, uh, again, extend my invitation for Tuesday evening, Christmas Eve, 6.30 right here. You're all invited. I hope you can come back and be here. It's a very special night. It's, I've said many times, one of my favorite of all the year. But in case you can't make it, and even if you can, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and let's just have a little Christmas treat. Matthew chapter 2. First book in the New Testament so not too hard to find. Matthew chapter 2, I will begin in verse 1, so catch up if you're not quite there. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I may come and worship him. Well, after hearing the king, they went their way. The star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Let me just give you a personal opinion here about the star. This was not a natural event. This was a supernatural event. Now, you can talk, you can go to planetariums and watch the star patterns over the timing of the birth of Jesus. Well, part of the reality is the timing of the birth of Jesus is not the same as the timing of the star. This probably was a year or two later. But you can listen to people try to proclaim, well, this is what was happening in the heavens, in the constellations at the time, and that's why they saw this star. And yet I read verse 9, and it says, the star went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. That's not a normal star. So I believe something supernatural happened, and God was moving on that night to lead the Magi to the place of Jesus as he was a young child, probably a toddler at the time. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. We three kings of Orient are... (laughs) My dad used to sing, smoking on a loaded cigar. (laughs) This is the house I grew up in, and you wonder, you you, you wonder. No, bearing gifts, we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. It's a cool song, that old Christmas carol many of us sing or we hear on the radio, but Matthew's intention in sharing this story aside from the factual historical basis, was not to add action figures to the manger scene. You know, and and they shouldn't anyway because the wise men weren't at the manger, they came to the house. This is later, as, as I said. But Matthew includes this account for one reason, a specific reason, to highlight the prophetic nature of the birth of a king. So that we would see and understand there was prophecy in this. In fact, in chapters 1 and 2 of the gospel according to Matthew, he lays out no less than five prophecies that were fulfilled immediately in the birth of Christ. Five is the number of grace in the Bible, which I find interesting. And these five prophecies all were, were things that were stated ahead in antiquity by the Hebrew prophets that could not have been intentionally fulfilled by a baby or a child. But they were fulfilled in him nonetheless. Look at them quickly. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 tells us in verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and this is Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Over 700 years before this birth, the prophet Isaiah made this startling statement about a virgin having a baby. Kind of a yeah, right statement until it happened. Matthew chapter two, look at verse 14, which tells us Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, this would be the prophet Hosea, Chapter 11, verse 1. Also, we see this prophesied in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 8. But here's the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. 
So somehow this Messiah was going to have to come up and out of Egypt. And so fulfilled in Jesus. If you look down at verse 17, this is what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. It was fulfilled. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And that horrible scene of the slaughter of all the male children under the age of two and the weeping that would have taken place all around the vicinity as far as Ramah in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the weeping of Rachel, representative there of the people, the women of Israel, fulfilled again at the time of the birth of Jesus. If you look at verse 22, at the end of the verse says, then after being warned by God in a dream, he, that is Joseph, left for the regions of the Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. That's a tough one because there's nowhere in the Hebrew Scriptures that says he shall be called a Nazarene. So where are they getting this? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that says our tender root will branch out. He's a branch, a netzer, where the word Nazareth comes from. So there's the tie-in right there, the fulfillment of prophecy. But listen to this. The second prophecy of the five required the telling of the visit of the Magi. To share this prophecy, you had to share what the context was of the prophecy. And it was the Magi coming, and the question asked, and verse 6 of Matthew 2 says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And it's slightly different in the New Testament Because as we've talked about, the New Testament gives us the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Whereas in the Hebrew scriptures in Matthew chapter, or Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it reads this way: As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, rather than by no means least among the leaders of Judah, too little to even be considered among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And Micah also says, his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. That's an amazing prophecy of the birth of Jesus coming into Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah in the Hebrew scriptures and then in the New Testament, by no means least among the leaders of Judah. And I love that. I think that's perfect. That's God allowing both realities to be spoken. That is Bethlehem. Really was too little. It's not the place for the birth of a a king. And yet, and yet, Bethlehem, by no means least. I mean, who doesn't know the name of Bethlehem even today? This is a city well-known worldwide and has been well-known worldwide for at least 2,000 years, if not 3,000 years, if you include the fact that David was born in Bethlehem. So this prophecy, Micah 5.2, was read in the halls of Herod, no less, because the Magi had come looking for Jesus. You know the old saying, wise men still search for him. And the truth is, it's always noble and wise to go looking for Jesus. Noble people, wise people always end up looking for Jesus, and they become more noble and more wise for the journey. But I want to ask a question this morning. Before we get back to Genesis 14, who were the magi? Who were these guys? Magicians? That's where we get the word magic, magioi in the Greek. Were they scholars? Were they kings? Astrologers? 
And were there just three? I mean, there were three gifts. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, so we assume three gifts, three guys to carry a gift each, so three kings, but we're not told explicitly. And what about the king's issue? Well, Western tradition indicates that one was a king of Arabia, the second was actually a king of Persia, and the third, a king out of India. And these three would make their way, and there's been long tradition that perhaps they were kings of those regions. Now, some completely disagree. John Calvin came along and said, the most ridiculous contrivance of the papists on the subject, that these men were kings. Beyond all doubt, they have been stupefied by a righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their gross ignorance. So said Calvin, and I read that, and I think, lighten up, Johnny, it's just a Christmas carol. <laughs> but where did we get the idea of kings? Clearly not from the carol. Where we start making an assumption, hey, you know what? As early as 200 A.D., 1,300 years before Calvin came on the scene, a man by the name of Tertullian, you might remember that name, we've talked a lot about him, early first century believer, writer, preacher, Tertullian said that while they were, quote, astronomers by trade, they were indeed kings. Hmm. But the Bible doesn't say the Bible doesn't list them as kings per se, but there may be a hint in the Bible. If you go all the way back to Psalm 68, verse 29, it says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Or Psalm 72, verse 9, let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Well, that's interesting. Isaiah 60, verse three, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So kings worshiping him, worshiping Messiah, and the only time we see this, well, at least so far, will be right here in Matthew chapter two. So who were they? These magi, definitely prophecy buffs. I mean, they, they knew their prof prophetic scripture. Probably, naturally, astronomers. Clearly, they were wise men. Certainly, these guys were noble of character. Proverbs 25, verse two says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. I love that verse, and it's a reminder. And let me just, can I encourage you for a moment? You go to work, and in the secular world, you hear things, and people hear that you're a Christian, and they might throw a cutting remark here or there. Maybe it's tongue-in-cheek, but you know, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're kind of making a little fun. You're going to be at church. Oh, yeah, they'll be at Christmas Eve service, I'm sure. And you hear these little things, and these moments, oh, great shirt. That is the coolest shirt in the, in the whole entire sanctuary this morning. <laughs> And thanks for calling me last night. Give me the heads up, too. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? I'm, okay, I'm, I'm totally off notes now. I, I wondered this morning when I was putting this on, I went, you know what? I wonder if he's going to wear the shirt. I wonder if Christoph's going to show because I've seen you in that before. Yeah. I'm not sure if I was hopeful or not, but I'm glad now. So God bless you, bro. Go Hawks. Okay, back to study. So, 
So you're at work and someone's making some fun and someone's poking and someone's not getting why you spend time even going to church on a Sunday at all. Listen, it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. Don't let the cultural climate try to paint Bible study as foolish or irrelevant or ignoble. It is one of the most noble things you can do to be in the word of God to pursue the king of kings. I think about Paul and Silas when they were sent away to Berea. And it was said that when they arrived there, they went to the synagogue and they're talking with the Jews. And Acts 17 verse 11 says, these were more noble-minded than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were, were so. And it is not ignoble, it is noble to pursue Jesus and to study out the word of God. It is utter foolishness to reject. Here's the truth. Oh, I don't want any of that. I'm too smart for that. Well, then you got a problem, bro. Give the truth a chance. It is always nobility to seek the Lord. And so here come the Magi. Now, the Magi, historically, we think their organization originated as a pagan priestly caste coming out of the Medes and the Persians around probably 600 years before Jesus, the Magi. If you've ever heard the name Zarathustra or Zoroastrianism, that was probably part of the religious focus back then. The Magi may have been a part of that, a part of that priestly pagan caste, but a very strong case can be made for these particular magi that they were at least watchful students of the Hebrew Scriptures, if not Jews themselves. The magi may have been Jewish. Well, how can you say that? Well, was there ever a time that the Jews were in Babylon? And did all the Jews return from Babylon to Jerusalem when they were free to do so? The truth is, most of the Jewish people after going into captivity in Babylon stayed there. What's really fascinating to me, probably the most intriguing thought about the wise men and their origination and why these guys would come make this long journey from the east to worship the Jewish king Messiah is that the prophecy of the future king of the Jews came to the east in the hands of a young man by the name of anyone? Daniel. Daniel, taken into captivity in 605 B.C., taken over to Babylon, he served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus and Belshazzar. He served in the court of Darius the Mede, in the court of Cyrus the Persian, all there in what was Babylon, taken then over by the Medes and the Persians. He was there the whole time, this, this servant of the living God. His official title was Rob Magoy. R-A-B, Magi, it was a title that meant chief of the Magi. It was an actual title. It was given to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men at Babylon, Rob Magoy. That was his role. And serving there as leader of the Magi, Daniel, no doubt, unquestionably taught the prophetic word of the Hebrew scriptures from verses like Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star 
shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel, glorious. Now behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds through the earth and skies. Last verse of We Three Kings. And truly, Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the three magi, whether kings or not, came and they did bow down and they did worship at the feet of the King of Kings. And I probably should have saved that one for Christmas Eve, but there you go. What makes Jesus King of Kings? Well, above all, he is the preexistent, preeminent God. Jesus, the one who came before all kings, makes him, gives him the right to be the king of all kings. Genesis 14, go back there now, gives us the first mention of kings and, interestingly, of war in the Bible. First time you hear about these rulers, you hear about war happening. We looked at that on Wednesday night, but a few things, if you weren't there, to bring you up to speed, four kings duking it out with five kings in the Valley of Sidim, which is on the south end of the Dead Sea. And there's a rabbinical commentary that states, and I quote, I read this Wednesday, when you see the powers fighting each other, look for the footsteps of the King Messiah. (laughs) That gives me chills. That's a Jewish rabbi writing that. When you see the powers fighting each other, look for the footsteps of the King Messiah. Well, Abram was on his way back from a brilliant military rescue. He went after his nephew Lot and and many others who had been captive and, and taken to the far north of what is Israel today, what's Dan, the territory of Dan today, a Canaanite city called Laish. And that's where we pick up the story. Abram now has made his way back down. He's coming south And he makes a stop off, verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. This is important. Where is he? Where is the valley of Shaveh? Shaveh means the valley of the plain or the king's valley, as it's said here, but it has another name. The valley of Shaveh is also called in the Bible the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Okay, well, where's that? Joel chapter three, verse one. Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Joel chapter three, verse 12, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Come up to the valley. Do you normally go up to a valley? Of course you don't. You go down to the valley. But God says, I'm inviting the nations to come up to the valley. Why? Because the valley is in Jerusalem and you always go up to Jerusalem. The valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Shaveh, the king's valley is the Kidron Valley. It is that valley that sits right between the Temple Mount to the west and the Mount of Olives to the east. And that's where Abram was. That's where this took place. There in the Kidron. One of the things that is remarkable about traveling in the land of Israel is you start to realize how many things happen in the exact same place. 
While some things you see in the land are huge and overwhelming, other things are quite small and surprising that all these things happen right here. The Valley of Shabbat, Valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley also called the Valley of Decision. And Abram has a decision to make here. Two kings meet up with him as he comes through this valley. Suddenly there's the king of Sodom. King of Sodom. By the way, I'll just point this out. If you didn't catch this on Wednesday night or you don't know, the king of Sodom back in chapter 14, verse 10, fell into a tar pit. Well, when you fall into a tar pit, pretty much that's it. Bye-bye. So he died. So who's this king of Sodom? And be the next guy in line who has now come up from the Valley of Sedim. He's come up from Sodom, and he meets up with Abram coming back to the south in the Kidron Valley, the king of Sodom. And so Abram meets him there, and interestingly, right at the same time, he also meets a mysterious monarch, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon in the Hebrew. If you've heard that phrase, El Elyon, that's it, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemy into your hand. Melchizedek comes out. Now, I gotta say something, get a little, get a little ahead of myself and who Melchizedek is, but it's interesting to me, and I think instructive for our lives, that here's Abram, and the moment the king of Sodom comes into the picture, Melchizedek's right there. What do you mean? When temptation comes your way, when the enemy shows up, remember this. When he comes right up into your face, Jesus is there. Are you saying Jesus is Melchizedek? Hold that thought. But just know that there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, providing a way out every time. You will never face a temptation that you cannot walk away from. The way out is Jesus. It's always Jesus. And when the king of Sodom shows up, note that Melchizedek is right there. Well, who, who is he? Listen, first century believers didn't really know, and they should have. Many people have heard perhaps the name of Melchizedek and have no idea what the relevance is of that name and why would we even talk about that name and big deal, let's move on to something else. And that's how the Hebrew pastor felt. Would you turn in your Bibles over to the book of Hebrew, Hebrews chapter seven in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter seven. The Hebrew pastor in writing this letter is having a little problem. He's trying to convey who Jesus is, trying to help people understand from a Jewish, from a Hebraic perspective, who Jesus really is. And as he writes, he comes to a point in chapter five, verse six, where he's quoting, in fact, if I begin in chapter five, verse five, he's quoting that Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he, that is God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Hebrew pastor, he's writing this out, you know, order of Melchizedek, and then he stops and thinks about it. Hmm. In verse 10, he says, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he writes it again, he goes, oh, 
Melchizedek is the perfect example, the perfect one to direct their attention to what's really going on as I try to describe Jesus here. But then he says in verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. There's a little frustration coming out of the pen here. He's talking to the people. He knows he's sending out this letter, but he realizes if I mention Melchizedek, I'm going to have to explain what this guy, who this guy was. I'm going to have to bring back to mind the story, though they really ought to know, but I've got to reteach and reteach and reteach. I heard something just last week, and I don't know who said this, so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but, but I heard that someone was saying, wow, Pastor Rick sometimes says some stuff that, that I'm... I'm barely getting, it's hard to understand, but I'm, but I'm listening, I'm, I, I'm trying to get it. And then someone else, same day, said, why does Pastor Rick keep repeating stuff so much? It's because there are those who haven't heard it yet. So if you're a mature believer, a Bible student, understand we've got to repeat these things. And by the way, if you think you hear things repeated a lot, try being me. Every time I open the Bible, oh, well, but we talked about that last week, Lord. Yeah, I want you to bring it up again. Yeah, but we are, yeah, what, did you cover, okay. What am I supposed to do? And for those who are hanging on and they're just going, man, I'm not sure if I'm getting it. Maybe you're new in Christ, a new believer. Maybe, maybe you're a long-time believer, but you never really studied the Bible. And we start to get into it and you go, oh, I'm overwhelmed. That's okay. Keep eating. Keep coming to it. Stay with it. I guarantee you, not because of my teaching or anybody else's, but I guarantee this word will flourish in your heart and your understanding will grow and will expand and you, things that make no sense even this morning are gonna make sense. Stay with it. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. You just keep searching it out and I have no idea where I am right now. Oh, so Hebrews 7. So that's the Hebrew pastor. He's trying to get people to follow along, understand who Jesus is, but he's got to explain a little bit more. Chapter 6, verse 19, he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he just gives up and gives in. I got to talk about this guy. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. Do you remember that guy, he's saying? And anyone who had read Genesis before would go, oh, yeah, I remember that story. As he returned from the slaughter of kings, he, he blessed Abraham, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all was first of all, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Melchizedek. Melchi, king. Zedek, righteousness. In fact, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, speaking of Messiah, in his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness, or Yahweh Zedek. Or Yahweh Sidkenu is the long form of the name, but Yahweh Sidek, Melchizedek. And so the Hebrew pastor says, that's who we're talking about. His name means king of righteousness. And then also, he's king of Salem, which is king of peace. King of righteousness? King of peace? 
okay, we're dropping some big hints here. Micah chapter 5, verse 4 says, He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He's king of Salem, that is to say, king of peace. In verse 3 of Hebrews 7, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days because we never see him before, Genesis 14, nor end of life because we never again see him after, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. No father or mother. Well, we don't have any names, so there's no, he just kind of shows up out of nowhere. No genealogical line to tell us why he should even be king of Salem. Who is this guy? Well, Hebrew pastor says he's made like the Son of God, which tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us that the Son of God had to come first because you don't make something like something that isn't already there. If I were to go home and build myself a new chair to sit on on Sunday mornings, if I wanted to make it like this one, this one would pre-exist that one. Am I right about this? So if you have someone who is made like the Son of God, then the Son of God must come before him. What does that tell us? That Jesus was here long before Melchizedek, which fits again with Micah chapter 5, verse 2, from days of eternity past. Always existent, preeminent, preexistent. And so made like a Son of God. But also that word, that phrase made like, it means either a facsimile or it means a representation. And the Hebrew pastor has already told us in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And so we could say the same of Melchizedek here. He is a representation of Jesus Christ. But read on. Now observe, verse 4, how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is a tithe. So the Jewish people would pay a tithe to Levi, and that tithe went to them. That was like salary, if you will. It was their pay to do the job that they did in the temple because they weren't working the fields and, and you know, tending the flocks. They were there in Jerusalem working the temple. So they received a tithe from the people, their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. This is a great point. He says, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is, Abraham didn't come from the Levites. The Levites came from Abraham, right? The one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Okay, so wait, Melchizedek. I, I, I got confused there. Melchizedek's genealogy is not traced to them. How do you know? Because he doesn't have a genealogy. We know nothing about where he came from. But here you've got Abraham, who then ultimately the tribe of Levi would come and all the Levitical priests would come. And so he goes on to say this. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. That is the Levitical priest. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi and all the priests who received tithes, <laughs> paid tithes to Melchizedek. 
I like to point that verse out to any pastor who thinks you shouldn't have to tithe if you're receiving tithes. If you're paid by a church, you shouldn't have to tithe. Well, <laughs> read that verse. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Listen, here's the thing. Melchizedek shows up. Abram's there in the Kedron Valley. King of righteousness, king of peace. He brings out bread and wine. Come on. And Abram immediately tithes as an act of worship to Melchizedek. And the Hebrew pastor now, this would be 2,000 years later, writes this down to show us Jesus. But a 1,000 years before that, so right in between, you've got Abraham and Melchizedek, and you've got the Hebrew pastor writing, and right in the middle of that 2,000-year period, David wrote something. If you want to turn quickly over to Psalm 110 in the middle of your, middle of your Bibles, Psalm 110, which is the psalm of the king. In fact, I think we studied it just this last summer. Psalm 110 in verse 2, which reads, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Therefore, this one is a king. This is a ruler, right? But verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. David reaches back a thousand years to Melchizedek and says, this king is gonna be of that order. And then a thousand years later, the Hebrew pastor brings Melchizedek up again to discuss this guy who is this guy in this mystifying meeting with Abram in the valley of the kings. He is both king and he is priest of most high God, king of righteousness, king of peace. And he is priest of El Elyon. Listen, there is only one ever who could manage both offices. Which is why when the law comes along, the law of Moses, kings had to come from the line of Judah and priests had to come from Levi because you did not mix religion and politics. You keep those two separate. That is way too much power for one man to be both king and priest. Nobody could handle it. Nobody can ever handle it but one. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 says, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Where's his throne? In the temple. Why is his throne in the temple? Because he's the high priest. Why is it a throne? Because he's a king, priest, and king. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That's Jesus, king and priest. Well, back in the King's Valley, go back there, Genesis 14. Melchizedek again comes out there to the Valley of Kedron. He brings out bread and wine. That is both ironic and iconic. For 2,000 years, Christians understand immediately when you say bread and wine, we don't say, get the cheese. <laughs> when we talk about bread and wine, it's what we just shared together. We know this. The body and the blood, the bread and the wine, that's the picture throughout the New Testament. That's the picture throughout the church age. We get that. It's so amazing to me that this is what Melchizedek chose to bring out to Abram in the Valley of Kings that day, bread and wine king of righteousness, king of peace, brings out bread and wine. He is priest of most high God. As it all starts to stack up, the weight of the evidence gets incredibly heavy for us. 
And so is Melchizedek Jesus? I think so. You might disagree with me. Some might say, no, he's just a type. He's a facsimile foreshadowing the Christ, but not actually the Christ. I'm not sure how you can see it any other way. But again, that is my opinion, and I'm not gonna stake my or anyone else's salvation on the issue, was Jesus Melchizedek, is Melchizedek Jesus? I think so. I think this is what we call a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He is God in the flesh. We've already talked about this. It's not the only time we see him in the Hebrew Scriptures prior to his birth in Bethlehem. And here in this moment, it's just so stunning. All of the, all of the images around this intriguing, enigmatic character, this Melchizedek, it all says Jesus. But listen to me, whatever you think about this passage, you still have to answer one question. Whether you think Melchizedek is Jesus or not, you have to answer this question, when did Abraham ever see Jesus? We've heard the verse recently. When did the two men separated by 2,000 years of earth chronology ever stand face to face? Jesus was speaking to an agitated assembly when he said, your father, Ham, your father Abraham, <laughs> Father Ham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Listen, if Abraham did not see Jesus, Jesus is a liar. Stop following him. Because Jesus claimed this. Abraham saw me. This was not, you know, metaphorical. He wasn't just painting a parabolic picture and the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. You're not yet, yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Man, if they were blown away before, when he said that, before Abraham was born in the Hebrew, it would have been Yahweh, I am. Egoemi in the Greek, I am. It was one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, a truly stunning statement. You know what? It, it, it means here, right now, this morning, that there is nothing and no one more immediately relevant to your life than he who is I am. There is nothing that matters more than he who is I am. It's not what's happening at work tomorrow. It's not whatever real-world stuff you may be involved in, so-called. He is I am, which means he is right now, which means even in this Christmas holiday season, while many people look back to this, ooh, cool little mysterious birth and think that's kind of fun, let's sing some carols and then move on with life, you're missing the point. He is I am. He was, he is, and he will be, but he is I am by his very name. And there are so many things in front of us to worry about, to stress over, so many things behind us that could weigh us down, so many things right now that currently seem so important to us, but he is I am. The question is, what are you gonna do with him right now? What are you gonna do with him tomorrow when you wake up or the next day or the day after that? He's I am, he's always right there, sup? <laughs> Every moment you turn around, the same. how many of you, let's just see a show of hands, how many of you 
will go through hours, days, maybe a few days, and then you realize, oh, I haven't prayed. When was the last time I prayed? And then so immediately you pray, and your prayer begins something like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. It's not that I don't care. It's just I've been so busy. How many of you have been there? That's kind of what I thought. I'm only raising my hand to give an example. I'm not. (laughs) And yet he is I am. You turn around at the kitchen sink, guess what? I am. You're opening presents with the family on Christmas morning. I am. You're having a tussle with the boss over some issue at work. I am. You're talking to the doctor about what options you have. I am. He is I am. Let him be. There is, again, nothing more relevant to your life than Jesus Christ. That's the question he asked his disciples up at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Who do you say that I am? That's the question you've got to answer. That's where you've got to live. With the I am, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, back in the valley, watch what Mel does. He blessed him blessed Abram, and said, blessed be Abram of El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek blesses Abram, but note the entire focus of the blessing isn't Abram, it's God. Blessed be Abram of El Elyon, and blessed be El Elyon, which reminds me that the best blessing that you can give anyone is the blessing you give them in the name of God. It's the blessing of God over them. It's not just gifts given to a friend or a family member. It's it's bringing Jesus, who is I am in your life, to become I am in their life. The blessing of God. Does the Bible say less? It's the blessing of God which makes truly rich. And that's here what Melchizedek is doing. He's blessing El Elyon, God most high, where real blessing comes from. And notice also, it's interesting to me that this Melchizedek, king of Salem, he shows up after the king's war. He's not listed, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, he's not listed above among all these big, important kings going to war together, fighting big battles. No, he wasn't engaged in this war at all. He just walks out his door, and there's Abram in the valley of Kedron, and he grabs some bread and wine and goes out to meet him. This king of peace... Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. You know what? We don't bring the kingdom to this world by fighting. Did you read about the Christianity Today opinion piece this last week? And there are evangelicals who are incensed Christianity Today, clearly a liberal left magazine, would write such a thing. And there are evangelicals who are going, no, I agree with him. Guy wrote a scathing op-ed about President Trump. And all of a sudden, what upset me this week was not the scathing op-ed, whatever. Say what you will, it doesn't change truth. Say what you will about Jesus, it doesn't change the truth. But when evangelicals, when Christians begin to fight one another, we are not representing Jesus 
my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom of this, was of this world, then my people would be fighting. Let's not be those who fight. We are children of the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We don't have to do battle. And by the way, you don't have to do battle in your personal life to prove Jesus to anyone. You just need to follow him. You don't have to prove why you do what you do or how come you say the things. Just follow Jesus. Don't engage in warfare and arguments and challenges and trying to prove yourself right. Not about winning arguments. Remember, we're about winning souls. Jesus is standing there before Pilate, and he says, my kingdom's not of this realm. And Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you answer correctly that I'm a king. We might translate that in our language. Oh, I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so again, in the valley, to cap it all off, as Abram is there with his Melchizedek bread and wine, king of Salem, priest of God, amazing moment, blesses him in the name of God most high, and he gave him a tenth of all. Abram worships. That, to me, is the most compelling reason why I believe Melchizedek was, in fact, Jesus, the Messiah, is Abram offers an act of worship to this man. And by the way, this is the first time tithing is mentioned in the Bible. Tithing, which is pre-law. Yeah, it's, it's required in the law of Moses for the people of Israel, but it's pre-law. This, this was long before Moses when Abram gave a tithe. As the Hebrew pastor said, it came from Abram and all who were in his gene pool. And then after the fact, Jesus still talks about tithing, upholds its legitimacy in the New Testament. Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And see, what Christians do with passages like that is we go, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's my tithe. What did Jesus say? He said, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus confirms the idea of tithing mint and dill and cumin, and, and I don't know if we wanna start collecting herbs here at the bridge, but, but the point is well made. He doesn't say, stop doing that. That's not what it's about. Do these things. No, he says, yeah, follow this. Do that. Do what's right and good. But show justice and mercy. Show compassion and kindness and faithfulness. We can be so quick as followers of Jesus, as Christians, to throw out the goodness of obedience in the name of grace. I'm under grace, therefore I don't have to tithe. That's why I don't give a red cent to my church, because I'm under grace. Well, God bless you, you are under grace. How much better for you if you will trust him in faithfully giving and in tithing? Talking about tithing again, Rick? Yeah, and I don't apologize for it because it's right here. Again, this is the first time in the Bible that tithing is even mentioned, and here's the only thing that I need to really say about it to you this morning to understand because for years and years we've talked about tithing at the bridge. Biblically, we've looked at it as an act of faith. That's what it's about. It's not about growing money to do stuff. It's not about paying the pastoral staff. 
It's not about looking holy and righteous. Tithing is an act of faith. I've said it over and over and over, literally until I've been blue in the face or perhaps green in the face. Tithing is an act of faith. It's you trusting the Lord. But you know what? First time tithing is even mentioned in the Bible, you know what it's an act of? Worship. Worship. It's an act of holy worship. Which tells me, don't just drop a buck in the box. Drop it off on your way on to your seat. Don't just tap the app and go, oh, okay, got to do the tithing, doing the bills, dink, done. Stop and worship. When you give anything to the Lord, it is an act of worship. Let it be. First Chronicles 16, 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. So I don't care if you write the check. Man, if you're sitting home writing the check, pause and pray and worship God. Thank you so much, Lord. You have provided and you are my provider and I worship you. You drop it in the box, pause for a moment and just say, Lord God, be blessed. El Elyon, God most high. You're working on the app or on the internet or whatever to send it. Stop. Don't go through the motions any more than you go through the motions taking communion. Don't go through the motions. Worship God. Now, watch this. Abram worships, and the king of Sodom is standing right there. Did you forget about him? He's still there. King of Sodom. Skeevy little guy comes out of this wicked city, king of Sodom. He's watching this go on. Abraham giving money and bread and wine. He's got an agenda, and he wants in on the action. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Just give me the people. That's all I'm looking for. How interesting to me. The word people in the Hebrew is usually um. We would transliterate that A-M, um. That, that's the word you would see for people. In fact, you see it back up in verse 16 where it says Abram brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people, um. But it changes down here. And the king of Sodom says, give the people to me and take the goods for yourselves. And the word people there is Nefesh, souls. Give me the souls. That's what I'm looking for. Sodom means burning. The king of burning just wants the souls. That's all he's looking for. He doesn't care about the riches and the wealth and the money and all of that. He just wants the souls. That's what he's always been out for, the king of burning. Notice I didn't say the king of hell, because in all truth, Satan is not the king of hell. Hell does not have a king. Revelation 9 tells us there's a pit, the abuso. That has a king, a demonic king, perhaps, well, no, a demonic king. Another study for another time. But Satan is not king of hell. He's not even in hell right now. He's not holding court in hell as people are dying and coming before him. Yeah, you there, you there, I'm in charge. He's not in charge. Where is Satan right now? Here. Here. Well, not here, here. <laughs> Hopefully out there, here. 
He's here. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> he is in the world. He roams about like a prowling lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. That's where Satan is right now, but he will be in hell. Satan is going to hell. Isaiah 14, 14, he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And then Revelation 20, verse 10 says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and a brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no king in hell. Nobody reigns in hell. The only thing that happens in hell is burning. King of Sodom, king of burning. I mean, what, what an amazing picture before us that you've got Melchizedek, the king of peace, and you've got the king of burning. And Abram has a decision to make as he's dealing with both of these guys. Understand, anything you hand over to the king of burning is simply fuel for the fire. Anything in your life that you invest for this life, for this world, anything that you would give to the enemy is just gonna burn. It's worthless. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his nefesh, his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. What will it profit you if you gain everything there is to gain in this world? but you lose your soul. Abram's there. And the king of Sodom says, just give me the souls. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, Yahweh El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share, meeting adjourned. I love Abram's strength of character here, his faithfulness, his spiritual recognition as he is able to discern between these two kings, one who is righteous and good and deserves a tithe and one who just wants to tear people up. And Abram looks at both. And he says, I have sworn. You know what the phrase I have sworn in the Hebrew, literally, I have lifted up the hand. I have lifted up the hand. Brothers and sisters, think about this with me. It is awfully hard to lift up the hand in worship when it's full of plunder, when it is clinging to the spoils of life. When you can't let go to trust the Lord, it's really hard to worship which is why, again, the very first time we see tithing in the Bible, it is an act of worship. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You're either gonna hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. I don't know how he could have said that any more plainly. And Abram here refuses to be indebted or obligated or duty-bound to the king of burning. He won't do it. And listen, this is, this is a great picture of real-world faith in action. Very, very practical. Abram had just given a tithe to the king of peace. 
which enabled him to say no to the king of burning. That's how it works. When I'm acting in faith first, I can stand against the lure or the temptation of the things that don't last. When I trust the Lord, I can say no to worldly worry. I can say no to self-dependency. No to temporal investments. And yes, to the saving of souls. You could say it this way. Abraham had lifted up the hand to Yahweh El Elyon, which allowed him to tell the king of Sodom, talk to the hand. Because he trusted. Because he knew the Lord. Two kings meet Abram in the valley of decision. King of Sodom, who just wants human souls, the king of Salem, peace, who is also a priest, who also brings out bread and wine, who receives Abram's worship, who blesses him and God most high. It's really an amazing moment. 2,000 years go by, and here come the Magi. And the Magi, were they kings, perhaps? At minimum, noble men of a sojourning faith. But they come right before Jesus, and they bow down, and the king of righteousness, king of peace, is worshiped again. What are you gonna do with him? What will you do in the valley of decision? We all are there. You have a decision to make. You can try to bargain for your soul, or you can lift up open hands to the Lord God most high. What will you do in Bethlehem? When you come before the Lord, will you join the company of wise men and offer of your treasures to the Christ? Glorious, now behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds through the earth and skies. Let's stand together. Psalm 148, verse 11 says, Kings of earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Jesus Christ is king of righteousness. Jesus is king of peace. He is priest of God most high. He is king of kings and Lord of lords, what will you do with him today? Fathers, we stand before you and we pray in this place, at this time, in this season of the world, we ask that your spirit would pry out of our hands whatever it is that we're clinging to that does not allow us to fully trust you. Father, for the, the person standing here this morning, who has never opened up hands of faith to simply say, I will follow you. Father, I pray there would be a release by your spirit that this person can just give it up, let it go, and trust in you. I pray for salvation to come into this place because, Lord, we're losing souls right and left. People trusting in themselves, trusting in the world, trusting in their own ingenuity, their self-sufficiency. And at the end of all this, there is only Jesus. 
Oh, I pray, Lord, move. Whether it's this morning, this afternoon, tonight, through this week, Father, move among us and save those who have yet to trust you. And Lord, for us all, may we keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us this morning. We invite you to be here and to move in Jesus' name. Amen.